All right, good morning. I want to welcome everyone here, uh, especially if we have someone visiting. I want to extend a special welcome to you. My name is Russell Atkins. I am filling in this morning. Tim is doing the graduation at the Advent Home. I want to welcome those who are listening online. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for another week uh, of life, another week of grace. I want to ask that you send your angels and your Holy Spirit uh, to our class this morning as we continue to uh, examine the topic of worship in our new quarterly. Uh, I want to thank you for revealing yourself to the children of Israel and for the further light that you've shed uh, on your character that uh, we have been privileged to see. I ask that you continue to bless our class, both corporately and individually. And when you come again, please please mold and shape our characters so that like your son, so we can stand ready. In Jesus' name, amen. We are on lesson number two in our quarterly uh, worship. This is entitled Worship and the Exodus, Understanding Who God Is. Someone read Exodus 20, verse, verses 2 and 3, please. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. How many of you knew that the Ten Commandments started with, I am the Lord your God? Yes. Okay. If you ask, if you ask most Christians how the first commandments start, they will declare, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's typically what's known as the first commandment. And yet, when you read Scripture, God's introducing himself. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Why do you think the Ten Commandments begin with, I am the Lord your God? To establish authority. To establish authority? For what? Any, any other reason than to establish authority? In 400 years of slavery, they had forgotten all about God. Excellent. And he had to reintroduce himself to them. I think that's exactly why. In fact, I think that's the primary reason why. Think for a minute. 400 years ago, right now, it was 1611. And what, what significant event happened in 1611? The Bible Thank you. King James Version of the Bible was first printed. How long ago? 400 years is. 1611. Think about all the progress that humanity has made in the last 400 years. Now, consider that you and your ancestors had been held in slavery for that long. And there had been a progressive weakening, and a progressive darkening, and a progressive loss of knowledge of who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was. And you and your uh, you and your ancestors have spent from dawn till dusk toiling away, building pyramids, building shrines to uh, the god of the cow, the god of the goat, the god of the jackal, the god of the snake, the god of the river, the god of the sun, the god of the moon, an endless list of pagan gods. And you did it from birth till death, and then your progeny did the same thing. Imagine for a minute just how 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 far gone from our minds the the knowledge of the true God, the Creator of heaven and earth, would be. Okay, I, I think this is probably the most compelling reason why God introduced Himself in the Ten Commandments: "I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt." And we see evidence of how darkened uh, the Israelites' minds were when, a few weeks from that point, uh, they asked to make a golden a calf out of gold and worship it and we're going to we'll talk about that a little bit later in the lesson um in getting ready for this i actually i did i went to a bible search engine and i i did a uh, a search on the phrase i am the lord and depending on what version uh, of the Bible I, I searched under, I got anywhere from zero references, this was in the Message Bible, to uh, nearly 250 messages. This is in the New, New International Reader's Version. Uh, and most, most of the, the average, average number of phrases was in um, 
it was around 150 for most versions. And most of these most of these phrases occur in Leviticus, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. And there are none in the New Testament. The phrase "I am the Lord" does not appear in the New Testament in any of the versions I searched in. Why do you think that is? Christ was here himself and was able to testify who he was. All right. Any other thoughts on Sabbath lesson? Yes. I think it's interesting if we believe that God does know the future and he knew 40 days in advance what was going to happen. He gave what the children of Israel needed to prevent problems. Mm -hmm. Just as much as he, he gave you know, information to get them out of trouble. And if they would have, you know, we've, uh, we've said in times past in this class, if, if the children of Israel would have kept the, the or if Abraham and, and others would have kept the, the promise and the covenant with God, a lot of these other things would not have had to be added to them. And if they would have remembered who God was, a lot of these other things would not have to be added Right, I, I I don't recall the exact test, but you're you're you know, the exact reference. But you're right. Um, there, there's a reference in, in one of Ellen White's books that suggests that if the children of Adam had kept the kept the knowledge, retained the knowledge of God, uh, the covenant of circumcision would not have had to been instituted. If the covenant that circumcision um, represented had been kept, then the Israelites would not have had to would not have been taken captive in Egypt, and if the if they had retained the knowledge of God, then the Ten Commandments would not have been needed to been spoken from Sinai and carved in stone. So, as a first step to the the giving of the, of the commandments, God gave us what we needed, you know, an acknowledgement of who He was as the basis for everything else that came afterwards. Uh, agreed, and and I think in. Tuesday and Wednesday's lesson, we're going to talk about that. There's a there's a text, there's a quote from Patriarchs and Prophets that suggests that um, if the children of Israel had been uh, pondering the words spoken from the mount uh, at the time when Moses was gone from them, they would have been protected from the temptation to to seek out uh, uh, or to ask permission to have a god that they could they could see. I've often fallen into the uh, into the trap of thinking that. Well, if I'd been alive back then, things would have been very different. But uh, but the hard reality is is that you know if like like I said before, if I, if my parents and their parents and their parents' parents had been raised in slavery and darkness, I don't think my mind would have been any better illuminated. In fact, it would have probably been worse. So uh, it's it's often easy to to look back and think, well, those children of Israel are real boneheads. Well. They may stand up in judgment against some of us uh, at the uh, second coming. So, <laughs> Sunday's lesson, uh, holy ground. I just kind of came up with this rhetorical question after reading this this uh, section, uh, this day's lesson. That at the time when Moses came upon the burning bush, what uh, what was his God concept? Did he have a correct concept of who and what God was? Nadine? I, she doesn't think so. Any, any other thoughts? He wouldn't seem so because he was afraid. Excellent. Excellent point. Moses was afraid. Why was he afraid? One thing, he had killed somebody. <laughs> That's correct. He was a murderer. Something to think about. Uh, and. And uh, again, in Patriarchs and Prophets, and for those who've never read that book, uh, I highly suggest it. It's it's got some gold in it. Some of the chapters, like the Why Were Sin Permitted, Satan's Enmity Against the Law, uh, the chapter on the Exodus. The, these these chapters are just filled filled with treasures. But um, it's interesting that she she refers to the life of Moses as having one sin in it. And it wasn't the murder of the Egyptian. It was the striking of the rock. Something to think about. Anyway, back to the burning bush. 
why why well let's read the let's read the passage this is um uh, Exodus 3, I think, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw the bush on, was on fire. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why does the bush not burn up? At that point... Did uh, Moses have any idea what was going on? I don't think so. I think he just saw this bizarre sight where bush was on fire and yet nothing was being consumed. Verse 4. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said to him, this is, this is key, I am the God of your father. Here again, we have God introducing himself to Moses. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Well, most of Egyptian gods had the pagan concept of appeasement, mm-hmm. and he felt probably that this was a God no different. That's certainly possible. His whole life had been based on the concept of power. He had seen power at work. The Egyptians, everything raw power, just kill people, swat them down, whatever, if they weren't working hard enough. And his whole concept was based on a, a god of just power that will zap you if you look the wrong way. Okay. Uh, I think that's also a valid point. Uh, he was raised by his parents until what was 12 and then he was basically taken to the egyptian courts and raised by them raised by the uh, the daughter of pharaoh himself um so i'm gonna agree that i think i think his god concepts were were askew tim Uh, also even though he didn't understand god's methods um he did understand that he was probably out of harmony with god so he felt unworthy, but then that combined with not understanding the way God would react to him makes him feel afraid. Okay, why, why did Adam and Eve run and hide? Because they were afraid. Wendell? Almost every occurrence in which someone sees a supernatural being recorded in the Bible, whether it be angel or God, or whatever. The only time I can think of it didn't happen is whenever God became camouflaged to Abraham. Mm-hmm. You know, but every other time, all, you know, almost, the first thing they have to say is, "Don't be afraid." I think he's expressing a natural, a natural reaction to, you know, a super, yeah, supernatural being. Okay. Second paragraph in in, uh, Sunday's lesson. The Lord was making clear the distinction between himself, the Lord, and Moses, a sinner in need of grace. Reverence, awe, and fear, these are the attitudes that are crucial for us to, in order for us to engage in uh, true worship. Really? I'm going to hope that the author meant um, respect instead of fear, but given the uh, trajectory of previous uh, quarterlies, uh, I, I sometimes have, I have to wonder. Uh, is, there, is there a thread running through Christianity today that says that we are to be afraid of God? But maybe it meant like the text, fear God and give glory to him. I mean, you know, some people take fear differently than we think of as fear. I agree, and that's that's why I want to give the author the benefit of the doubt. But my my point my point is is that if you go to any any church on any given weekend, the li- the likelihood of you hearing a sermon uh, suggesting that God's something to be afraid of is going to be there. It's a high likelihood you're going to hear something that. Uh, suggesting God's to be afraid of, either overtly or subtly. 
Yes. It seems like if if they had known each other better, <clears throat> they would have known how God was going to react to them. But when you don't know how someone's going to react to you, when you do something bad or something that you think might not be exactly right, you're not, and you're not sure how they're going to react, there is a little fear there. But they, if you really know that person, you know how they're going to react to no matter what you've done. They they who? You mean Adam and Eve? I mean, God, yeah. Or just... Adam and Eve or... Or Moses. Or or Moses. Any, okay. Um, I, I'm going to suggest that there's something that before Adam and Eve fell, they knew God. They knew... They knew how he was going to behave. They knew how he was going to react. They knew they knew his character. They didn't know him well enough to trust him. They had not yet developed a trust in him, as that's evidenced by the distrust of God uh, of Eve and in taking the fruit because the serpent said that it wouldn't harm him. But uh, there's something about the nature of being out of trust and out of harmony with God that causes this fear reaction. It changes our brains, it changes our minds, it changes our thought processes, and indeed it's changed our DNA uh, to look out, to cause us to, now we're abiding in fear and selfishness as a result of, of that change and as a result of the fall, whereas before we were abiding in grace and goodness and love. So there's something about being out of harmony with the, with the way that God created us that causes this fear and selfishness. And this, this fear and selfishness is, is the, um, one of the many things that Christ hopes to eradicate from us. And it's part of the healing remedy that he secured in his developing a perfect character on earth and dying for us. When you read the Bible and the stories of the different characters in the Bible, it seems like almost everyone would have feared God had they seen him in person. But Noah, I mean, not Noah, excuse me, Enoch, Enoch walked and talked with God and walked right into heaven. I mean, why don't we have any indication of him fearing God anyway? Because he knew him so well. <laughs> uh, that's certainly possible. But, but we, we also have an indication that he was a sinner in need of grace along with the rest of us. So, I, I don't, you know, Scripture is, is, um, doesn't give us a lot of details about Enoch's uh, life. And, and, it's true. and for whatever reason, God has seen fit that, that, that's, that we don't need that. <clears throat> Why does he ask that you have no other gods before me? Is he is he really that insecure that uh, he he absolutely needs our worship in order to feel better about himself? So that we don't veer off to the wrong. He is taking care of us, and he wants us not to stray off on off on the path that would hurt us. Well, on Friday's lesson. Okay. Shoot. Because I agree. I mean, from patriarchs and prophets, this mm-hmm. is a quote. Humility and reverence should characterize the deportment of all who come to the presence of God. In the name of Jesus, we may come before him with confidence, but we must not approach him with the boldness of presumption, as though he were on a level with ourselves. There are those who address the great and all-powerful and holy God as they would address an equal or even an inferior. There are those who would conduct themselves in his house as they would not presume to do in the audience chamber of an earthly ruler. These should remember that they are in the, his high, it, are in his high sight, whom seraphim adore, before whom angels veil their faces. God is greatly to be reverenced. All who truly realize his presence will bow in humility before him. I completely agree. Why? Because he's the creator. He created us. He deserves that reverence, that all that respect. He's a holy God. He absolutely does deserve it. But is there something more to it? Well, look at all the trouble they got into when they served a whole lot of other gods. Okay. Well, we're, we're getting somewhere. Learning absolutely cannot take place in a chaotic environment. And I really think that's the number one thing, is that God knows that if we are going to hear his voice, if we're going to learn about him and, and learn anything from him, we're going to have to be reverent and respectful and quiet. <laughs> so we can hear. <laughs> okay, another piece of the puzzle. I think when we truly under- are beginning to understand the true character of God, it, it almost naturally happens that we are we are enraptured, and I think that we want to listen and we want to hear. We want to. It doesn't mean that everybody does. Some people don't wish to. They're rebellious heart. But I think naturally, as we look at God, there comes this element that we are in awe of who He is. Okay, 
This is another big, big piece of the puzzle. What's another term for that? It's actually a law. We become like a person we admire. It's the law of worship. It is stated in Scripture as, by beholding we become changed. This is why God said, you shall have no other gods before me. He knows, because he created humanity, he knows that whatever we reverence, whatever we look up to, whatever we worship, we will start becoming changed into that likeness. And that there's nothing on this planet, there's nothing in our solar system, there's nothing in our universe, including the angels, that we can worship that is going to elevate our minds and noble our characters. Only the worship of God, the creator, the maker of everything, is, is, is what is going to elevate our minds to, God, to, to a knowledge of God. Yes? So can we legislate how people should behave in church because we don't know where they are on this journey or on this path by beholding? I don't think so. I don't think it Should can be. We be glad that they're there, no matter what they're wearing and I, how they're behaving. It would. I think we should. If they were all like us, but if they aren't, shouldn't we embrace them? Right. <laughs> I, I think that's a great point. Thank you. Let's see. I've got uh, three hands. Let's, Tim. Uh, you pretty well stated it. I was just going to say that what I think the point Ellen White was trying to make in the quote was that when we don't recognize God for who he is and know him for who he is as being the source of life, of knowledge, of love, all these things, then, like you said, we can't be elevated. We can, we, we, if anything, we're going to dump down or stay on a plateau or whatever because we view God as a parallel or a like one of us, and therefore we're not going to be changed. Excellent, yes. I'm going to preface this statement with, I'm guilty. Okay. Okay. What I'm about to say. We I talk, probably am too. Then. Well, we we talk of the Israelites as you know being enslaved for 400 years and not really knowing God because of the way they had lived. Okay. The God they had been introduced to through all these years. We as an Adventist church have had our message for how many years? 170 years. Mm-hmm. When the church began, were we not a humble, sincere people, not so concerned with the ways of the world, but more concerned with preaching the gospel and spreading the message of the love of God. What has our church now become? By beholding, we become changed. We behold the other churches of the world. We behold the world. We as individuals have our televisions and we worship the way they dress, the way they, the cars they drive, the houses they live in. We become like the world. Are we not just as guilty as they? Uh, I mean, we're supposed uh, to be a peculiar... I am guilty uh, as well. And I think that's an excellent point. I think that's a, that's a point better than uh, I could have made any, any, any time. Um, I had a hand back here. Hang on just a second then. I was going to say something similar to what Tina said. You can see how people worship ball game uh, heroes, and they wear their T-shirts, and they dress like um, they're heroes. Or you can see the kids who have um, music heroes, and they dress like them and act like them. I mean, that's a normal reaction in humans to worship something. We pick something to worship. And... Um, and we want to be like that person that we worship. So if we pick God, we want to, want to be like him and uh, reverence him and love him like, like other people love other things. And above and beyond that, I think it is critical that we pick the God as revealed by Jesus of Nazareth as opposed as opposed to a god who as a god, as opposed to a god whose character has been marred by the traditions of men and the philosophies of men how did jesus relate to people when he was here on earth he didn't uh, go around with you know pomp and circumstance he was very humble and and uh, he wanted people to come to him in the same way i agree uh yes yeah yeah I was going to say, we talked about Adam and Eve a while ago, and they were afraid. I think it's all about survival. And we, and you see that with the, uh, during the Egyptian bondage. I mean, they were just scratch, they were scratching for survival every day. And it's all about survival. And I think it's easy to see salvation in terms of survival. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about me. Right. Am I going to make it to heaven? You know. And then our worship becomes uh, subjective and about ourselves. In other words, 
I was doing the songs even. You know, I was doing this, I was doing that, the Lord did this for me, mm-hmm. and it becomes so focused right. on ourselves. That's a survival thing, even like the Israelites were everybody's seeking some kind of survival. And if we look only at that and we don't move away from that. That's, that, that's correct. I, I agree. How many times have you heard, or in my case, how many times have you said, you know, I didn't get real much out of that sermon today. <laughs> I just didn't get anything out of that song service. I didn't get anything out of church today. Really? I mean, are, are we that self-centered that I have been? I mean, what did you put into it? exactly. Well, what did you give to the song service? What did you give to the sermon? What did you give to the church? What did you give to the stranger sitting next to you who might have been a visitor there for the first time listening to you complain about the service? <clears throat> Let's, uh, oh, is there one more? I'll take one more comment, then we'll move to Monday's lesson. Yes? It seems to me that we've created quite a difference between God and Jesus. And Jesus came to reveal what God was like. Most of us, if we were all in the kingdom, we'd be ready to shake Jesus' hand. We'd go to God with fear and trembling. Yeah, only if Jesus stood between us, right. And it seems to me he tried to say, this is not what God is like. If you see me, you know, we get along, you get along with God. Mm-hmm. And yet this division has, has not seemed to permeate our thinking. I... I couldn't agree more. I'm not too sure why. Well, because Satan is good at what he does. You know, there, there was a time before the first coming of Christ where Satan had so darkened a group of people's minds as to their God concept. And these were people that were supposed to have the, a perfect idea of who and what God was. He had so darkened their minds that when he came and walked among him, they plotted and successfully murdered him. With our particular insight, namely from the Spirit of Prophecy writings, uh, which are a a further revelation, I believe, of and detailing of, of Scripture, we we have also indicated that Satan is again going to deceive a group of people on Earth that are supposed to have uh, a true God concept, and he's going to present. He's going to come as God Himself. He's going to present himself as Jesus returning again. And the people are going to be fooled again. So uh, my, my only explanation for what is to why is because Satan is good at what he does. And of all the people on earth, we should know his tactics by now. Many of us still buy into the concept. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. How many of us have been given any kind of instructions as a child for how to worship. Whether it's how to say a prayer or how to get up in front of a congregation, you're not just praying for yourself. You're praying for, and sometimes it's on the radio, for the whole world to hear. And here again is my point. Uh, I think Satan is working very hard to construct a false god concept in the minds of humanity that this is the kind of God they expect, and he's going to give them that kind of God. All right, Monday's lesson, the death of the firstborn. This is regarding the Passover and worship. Uh, let's, the death of the firstborn was the last of the plagues slash miracles. Uh, I actually want to start at the beginning. What was the point of all these plagues? To show the impotence of the gods of Egypt. The end result was to, to free the children. Correct. But, but they need to be free, not only physically, but they also need to be free spiritually. And mentally. Yes, I agree. So, what was the first miracle? It's before the Nile. What was the first miracle that Moses performed? God preferred form through Moses. Correct. Threw his staff down, and uh, it became a snake. And the magicians of Egypt duplicated this. Moses' serpent went and uh, devoured the snakes, the uh, 
the magician of snakes. Second one was the Nile turning to blood, which also the Egyptians counterfeited. Uh, the Nile was an object of worship. The Nile and its inhabitants were objects of worship uh, of the Egyptians. So here again, God's trying to reveal the impotence of the gods of the Egyptians. Number three, the frogs, which also was duplicated by the Egyptians. Um, here again, the frogs coming out of the river, the Nile god, instead of being perceived as a source of of good and benefit, is now a source of uh, disgusting frogs that ended up crawling all over the place and then dying. The flies. No, wait, the lice. Um, this is an interesting one. The, the pagan priests were very particular about how they would allow themselves and how they would allow others to come to a an alt, come to an altar in order to offer worship. So if you came with a mosquito on you, you were defiling the pagan pagan uh, place of worship and therefore were not allowed to offer sacrifices to the god of of the whatever. So the plague of lice infesting must have really damaged uh, the Egyptian houses of worship because the lice were everywhere infesting anything and everything. Next came the flies, and, and noteworthy, the lice was not duplicated by the Egyptians. In fact, the uh, magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. The flies, this was designed to destroy the Egyptians' faith in Beelzebub, or the fly god. Imagine having a god that you worship to protect you from flies. That sounds ennobling, doesn't it? So... Beelzebub was powerless to stop the uh, plague of flies. Again, he's trying to trying to wake up the minds of not only the Israelites, but the Egyptians as well, because God wanted to save them too. That's something that often gets missed. God wished, God, the Egyptians were God's children as well. Pharaoh was God's son. And I'm, I imagine it broke God's heart when Pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea. Number six, the destruction of the livestock. This, um, and here we begin the uh, accepting of the children of Israel. The children of Israel's livestock was not destroyed, so God is showing a a preference, if you will. Uh, it's probably not a good, probably not a good term, but he's he's showing an exception to the children of Israel versus the Egyptians. This this plague was designed to uh, destroy. Uh, to counteract the entire system of bestiality, of bestial worship uh, that the Egyptians have. They worship anything that, almost anything that had legs, uh, the Egyptians would worship. Um, sixth plague, uh, which is the seventh miracle, are the boils. It's an interesting note. Um, there's some authors that suggest that human sacrifice was still performed. Uh, in Egypt at this time, and the pagan priests would gather the ashes from the human sacrifice and would throw it in the air, and the wind would catch it, and anywhere that that dust would settle, uh, it would protect, it would be protected of evil because of the sacrifice of the human. It would, it would appease the uh, angry god that uh, needed appeasement. Uh, and it's there are also those that theorize that when Moses went to the furnace and took the ash and threw it into the air, that he may well have taken ash from a human sacrifice. At any rate, instead of uh, the Egyptians being protected from evil, where, wherever the ash landed, uh, wherever the ash landed, it turned into some serious boils. I don't know if you guys have ever had a boil. I have. I named it. <laughs> it was that annoying. Next came the hail. Now, this one, along with the ninth plague, was directed particularly at the worship of Isis and Osiris. These are the gods of the moon and sun, respectively. Um, Egypt's climate is fairly temperate, and I don't imagine they see hail all that often, especially hail of the size that uh, was recorded in Exodus. 
So this was, again, was uh, intended to wake up Israel and Egypt to the idea that pagan gods don't really control the weather, but the Creator does. The locusts, this was a plague uh, directed against a god called Serapis, S-E-R-A-P-I-S. This is a god credited with protecting the country from locusts. He failed. Uh, Next was the darkness. This, again, uh, was directed against Osiris, the sun god. This is a darkness that people could feel. Uh, And this, here here we are again. The creator controls the elements. The creator, creator created the heavenly bodies. They obey him. Now we come to the death of the firstborn. This was designed to reveal that God is the only source of life anywhere, period. Uh, my reference for this is the appendix in Patriarchs and Prophets. Uh, I would encourage you to read it uh, regarding the plagues. It's fascinating. Um, I've included a link that uh, I think Eve sent Tim, and Tim forwarded it on to me. Uh, there's a link in the notes uh, regarding... Uh, there's an interesting take on the meaning of the Passover service. And, and just to summarize here, uh, in Eastern cultures, uh, at, the time of, at the time of the Passover, when, when someone was expecting a guest, blood would be sprinkled over the doorway in an expression of a welcome, not as an expression of unwelcome, uh, or as a, as a covenant of hospitality, if you will. Uh, and the more honored the guest, the more costly the blood. For example, if, uh, if the blood of a dove or a pigeon might be used for a neighbor or a distant family member, but the blood of the, quote, fatted calf uh, would be used when welcoming royalty. There's a... Anyway, the, this, this, this article, which I have no idea whether it's adequately or accurately researched, but it's very interesting, and, and it makes sense to me. But the article suggests that Christianity has the idea of the Passover and the first and the death of the firstborn completely backwards. In that the the uh, the Israelites, by putting blood on the doorposts and over the threshold, were inviting God into the house as a welcome, and then uh, and then uh, they were abiding in the shadow of God. Uh, we are, there are also scriptural references as far as to abiding in the shadow uh, of uh, God or under the shadow of his wings. We are traditionally thought that we put the blood the blood on the doorway was to keep God out, to keep him from, from killing the firstborn. Any thoughts? Did I get that about right? Pretty close, yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Feel free to add any details if you wish. Yes. It is very interesting. It's kind of like a, an expression of loyalty. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I'm loyal to you. Please come in. Right. Also in the article, kings would, kings would use the blood on the threshold as, as an indication of whether this subject was loyal and whether the subject wanted to welcome them in. But here we go, Exodus twelve twenty three. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over the doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter the houses and strike you down. So are we to believe that there was an angel in front of each door preventing another angel on a, that was on a destroying duty, you know, to not enter the house? Or was that satan's evil angel or satan himself coming to destroy and god was keeping them out uh, absolutely the, you know there's a distinction made between the lord and the destroyer um is it possible and i don't have any insight i'm just you know rhetorical questions here is it possible that the destroying angel indeed was lucifer because he didn't he didn't care he didn't care who he killed Heathen or heathen or Israelite, he just he lives to destroy. That's his nature. That's his character. I really, I really just don't think that the powers of evil are going to cooperate with God in this whole effort, though. You know, I can't really picture him. It may not be a matter of cooperating. It may, maybe you know, the, if the destroyer had his way, he would have destroyed all the children of Israel. He would have destroyed all the Egyptians. Maybe it was the restraining grace of God Himself. That restrains the destroyer. I don't think it's a matter of 
of Satan saying, "Okay, Lord, I'll I'll take these I'll take these firstborn. I won't take those because you won't let me." I don't think it's Satan cooperating at all. I think it's God restraining now, the, the the forces of Satan. In Exodus twelve twenty three, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top. It says, "When the Lord will go through the land and strike the Egyptians." But it also referred to the destroyer. I, you know, I, I have, I have no issues with either either take on it. You know, whether whether that was Christ Himself as the angel of the Lord striking down, you know, putting the firstborn to sleep. Uh, you know, I, that that can be explained as well. Uh, I, I think it can be explained rationally. But was the Book of Exodus written from God's perspective or from man's perspective? Exactly. This, this wasn't just the humans, it was also the cows, uh, right. the other animals, etc. This was total devastation. But going back to who, who did this, as you said, I don't know that it makes a difference, except that we've, we've often referred to the parable or the, the story of the, the scorpion and the frog before. Mm-hmm. And um, the character of, of Satan is the character of Satan. Right. And Yeah, and... The leopard doesn't change his spots, nor the Ethiopian his skin. At the end, when the four winds are loosed, is that God unleashing his fury on earth and destroying humanity? Or is that Satan? Ellen White makes it very clear that that's Satan. Scripture, so how is this any different? Scripture makes it very clear that it's Satan. You know, the, the, the four angels have, who have been given power to harm the earth, what is their power to harm the earth? They remove their restraint on the forces of, of the four winds of strife. That's their power to arm the earth so by removing restraint. Satan to kill the firstborn. I, I'm not saying that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm asking if it, I'm, I'm asking rhetorically, is it possible? Well, why would he help God with his plan? <laughs> well, that was her question. <laughs> I, <clears throat> Satan, Satan's nature is to destroy. When he's unrestrained, that's what he does. When, 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 yeah, exactly. When unrestrained, when we see this in Job, when, when, when God gave Job the, uh, or when God gave Lucifer, okay, treat him how you will, do what you want. You know, Satan could have increased his family, he could have increased his wealth, but he didn't. Well, why not just kill him anytime? Why wait till God has a plan and follow through with God's plan? Restraining power. Satan is operating under the, the heavenly restraints. And frankly, yeah. the only argument that the only argument Satan has left is that you know, to to the universe is that I have never been able to operate without the restraint of God. If only God would leave me alone, my government would succeed. And as as people become sealed one one way or the other, that's gonna happen. The restraint of the Holy Spirit is going to be removed. As the Holy Spirit is rejected, it's going to be removed. Well, and Satan will operate without restraint. And then all hell is going to break loose. Well, okay. God let Satan go. Do what he want. Why didn't he kill the whole family? Why not? Why kill just the firstborn? You say so. God, what God did would say you could only kill the firstborn. Nobody else in the family. Just go kill the firstborn. Well, he said to Job, you can do anything but kill him. And, and, and you can do anything to his family you want, essentially. I, I, I want to make it clear. Get it on record and recording. Is this thing working? You got me. We're hot. I see the lights lighting up when I talk, so it's it's working. Uh, I'm not saying for certain that Satan killed the firstborn of the cattle and and the uh, Egyptians. I do not know that. I'm asking, is it possible? Something to think about. I got a lot of hands. Yes. I don't know how we can attribute the first uh, nine plagues that God did it, and then all of a sudden we're going to twist it around and say that Satan did the last plague. I think that's a valid point. I think it's. I agree. Uh, and like I said, I, I have no, I have no issues with the possibility that that Christ Himself took the life of the of the firstborn. I mean uh, that that can be. That can be easily that can be easily explained and 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 makes sense in my mind as well. Um, another point is, you know, all of the other plagues were attacks against or or demonstrations of the uselessness of the pagan gods, and this is no exception. Right. Um, 
all of the firstborn for the Egyptians were dedicated to their pagan gods. Um, so this is just another, you know, they're dedicated, but your gods can't save them. Great point. All right. This uh, Tuesday's lesson, titled No Other Gods. Uh, I want to read passage from Patriarchs and Prophets. This is uh, page 305. The law was not spoken at this time exclusively for the benefit of the Hebrews. This is referring, obviously, to the speaking of the law uh, from Mount Sinai. God honored them by making them guardians and keepers of his law, but it was to be held as a sacred trust for the whole world. The precepts of the Decalogue are adapted to all mankind. They were given for the instruction and government, something to think about, of all. Ten precepts, brief, comprehensive, and authoritative, cover the duty of man to God and to his fellow man. And all are based on the great fundamental principle of love. Something else to think about. Quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and all thy strength and all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself, referencing Luke 10.27. In the Ten Commandments, these principles are carried out in detail and made applicable to the condition and circumstances of man. We, we've talked a little bit about this, but do you know that there are some in our church that suggest that we are preaching heresy because we suggest that the Ten Commandments, that, that Tim has suggested that the Ten Commandments are a distillation of the law of love, a very succinct and accurate and adequate distillation of the law of love, but... There and he, I think the term he uses is a transcript of the law of love and the character of God, which is a quote from Ellen White. There, there are those in our church who think we're preaching heresy because of that, and that they are not indeed just a distillation, but they are the law in and of themselves and should be worshipped as such. How many, how many of you remember the judge in Alabama who refused to? Um, See if I got this right. I think he re he refused to have the Ten Commandments removed from his courtroom. Yeah, uh, and there were there were protesters supporting him that chained themselves to this block of granite that had the Ten Commandments on it, and they had signs saying, "This is our God." Recall that. Are the Ten Commandments our God? No. no, they're not. Are they a revelation of our God? Yes. Yes, they are. Are they... Are they the only revelation of our God? No. No. We can... We can see that the Ten Commandments have been are a great transcript of the character of the law of God, and they were given to the children of Israel at the time when they were needed. But as Tim has said before, you can, you can take a blood sample from me, and you can uh, plot out my DNA pattern with all its uh, amino acids and, and all its structure, and, and, and you can get an idea. You can, you can get an idea of my eye color. You can get an idea of uh, my hair color when I used to have it. You, you can you can learn a lot about uh, Russell Atkins um, based on the, my DNA transcript, but there's a lot you don't know about it. And um, the Ten Commandments, and I, I support him on this, I think they are a transcript of the character of God. They are by no means the end. Thoughts? If they had been, Christ would not have had to come. Uh, excellent point. Thank you. In Sunday's lesson, we saw that uh, Moses saw the burning bush, and he went, uh, he went over, and God introduced himself. said, I am the Lord, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, when Moses realized that, he, uh, he hid his face because he was afraid. Now, a few months later, what does Moses ask God to do? I want to see him. Let me see you. I want to know you. 
show me your face. And God, in his uh, infinite love and wisdom, knew that if, if he had indeed revealed his face to Moses, it would have destroyed him. So God, you know, the hand that created the world, lifted Moses up, put him in the cleft of a rock, kept him covered, and caused his goodness to pass in front of him. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets. This is when Moses is, is pleading. Uh, God, God has said, I'm, I'm going to destroy Israel. I've abandoned them. They, they've abandoned me. I'm done. Still the prophet did not cease pleading. Every prayer had been answered, but he thirsted for greater tokens of God's favor. He made the request that no human being had ever made before. I beseech me, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. God did not rebuke this request as presumptuous, but the gracious words were spoken. I will make all my goodness pass before thee. The unveiled glory of God, no man in this mortal state can look upon and live. But Moses was assured that he should behold as much of the divine glory as he could endure. Again, he was summoned to the mountain summit, and then the hand that made the world, the hand that, quote, removeth the mountains, and they know it not, took this creature of dust, this mighty man of faith, and placed him in the cleft of the rock, while the glory of God and all his goodness passed before them, before him. This experience, above all else, the promise that the divine presence would attend him, was to Moses an assurance of the success in the work before him. And he counted it of infinitely greater worth than all the learning of Egypt, all his attainings as a statesman or a military leader. No earthly power or skill or learning can supply the place of God's abiding presence. I've got this in bold. To the transgressor, note, to the transgressor, it is a fearful thing to fall at the hands of the living God. But Moses stood alone in the presence of the Eternal One, and he was not afraid. Why? Why was he not afraid? For his soul was in harmony with the will of his maker. Says the psalmist, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. This is a great summation of the gospel. The soul that's out of harmony cannot stand to be in the presence of God. The soul is in harmony with the, with the will of the maker, will abide in the lake of fire, will stand and will walk among the fiery stones, will swim in the crystal sea mixed with fire. Something to think about. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for, again, for the revelations of your character that you've given us through your word, through the life and death and resurrection of Christ on this earth. Uh, as continued blessings on our class, I uh, ask that you be with those of our group who are not with us today and bring them safely back in the weeks ahead. Again, please continue to mold and shape our characters to that like your son, that we may be in harmony with your will and stand when you come again. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.